So, you're a Pats fan. Not the season you wanted now, was it? But not to worry. This Friday, the 4th of November, St. Pat's historian Dermot Looney launches his book, Saints Rising, to help you through the winter to reminisce on better years. And we have Dermot on the show as well. The fella in the green and white short. The fella in the green and white short. Keep the good man on the bench. Welcome to the Big Kickoff League of Ireland podcast in a week where Shamrock Rovers lifted the Premier Division trophy. We had a couple of surprising managerial departures already and Shells win the Women's National League in dramatic style. My name's Roy Shanahan and I'm joined by Nathan Doyle from thebigkickoff.com and we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Dermot on the show as he launches his book Saints Rising. Welcome on to the show, Dermot. Thanks, Nate Roy. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. Um, listen, tell us, tell us a little about the book. I suppose. Uh, how did you, how did you start it? Why did you start it? Yeah, look, there's never been a history book about St. Pat's, right? So you know, Shelburne, Shamrock Rovers, Bohemians, plenty of other clubs around the league have had countless books written about them, and some very good ones, indeed, about I don't know following the club, but also about the history of the club. Um, and just remarkably, St. Pat's uh, have never had one. Um. There's been some nice kind of archives kept and, and statistics and uh, some people have tried to get a book off the ground in the past, but uh, Pats have never had a book written about them at all. So about four years ago, um, I said, look, we've we got to start something on this. So I started researching the history of the club. I write in a program every two weeks uh, about the, the history. Um, and I decided earlier this year, you know, I was still trying to get a book going. I said, we have to cut it off because there's just too many stories to tell from the early years of the club. So I've cut, cut it off at 1961, which is the end of Pat's kind of golden era, golden decade when they entered the League of Ireland. So this is the early history of, of St. Patrick's Atlantic. But I think there's plenty in it for football fans. Obviously, for Pat's fans, there's plenty in it. There's a lot of excitement around the club because a lot of this has come from uh, the fans of the club. They've funded the book. They've given me the, the archives, the photographs. Uh, they've given me so much help in getting it. So there's a lot of excitement around Pat's about this. But I think there are you know great stories in this. For League of Ireland fans and just for football fans in general about a team of, of kids of young lads from a very ordinary working class background who started a club which kind of within nearly just over 20 years went on to become champions of Ireland I think that's a great story Who gave you the title St. Pat's Historian? Uh, not me um, so I got That must have been Nathan uh, was it? Yeah, he just yeah, like branded you <laughs> Like I was on another, it wasn't a podcast. It was on a kind of another uh, Zoom interview kind of thing that went out. And I said, "Look, I'm not a historian because I'm not qualified. I, I don't have a an academic background in history. Really, I'm uh, very interested in history." And I said, "Look, I'm very much an amateur historian." And then they put that as the title down across the screen, in big mass letters, <laughs> "Amateur Historian." So I didn't like that, even though I said it myself. So no, look, no. I, I'm just someone with an interest in, in, in football history and social history. Um, you know, Inchicore, my dad's from Inchicore, um, mom's from Ballyfair, I'm from a place called Greenhill. So I'm, I'm very interested in the local history of the area, where, where people came from. Um, and look, that feeds in incredibly to the story of football, because football is the people's game. But very much so in Inchicore, uh, you know, an ordinary working class community that this team sprang out of the railway works uh, in Inchicore and, you know, played great football and just climbed their way up to the different divisions without ever having much money and without ever being that fashionable. Even as the League of Ireland goes, which isn't a fashionable thing at all, um, but other clubs like Drumcondra, who are a massive club, say in the fifties, Shamrock Rovers, these were fashionable big clubs with lots of sponsorship and money men behind them. 
perhaps never had that. So I, I think it's a really interesting uh, social history as well, yeah. As, as a Pats fan there, it's great. And like you said, it's crazy to think that it's a force of its kind, isn't it? Uh, you'd imagine a club as historic as Pats and everything that they, the rise and falls that they went through, it would have been put down on paper uh, at some stage. Like even, remember, you you done, um, wasn't it, the history walk throughout the summer, wasn't it, going through the uh, the, the famous park and Blizzard and things like that. So even to see that is fascinating. But I suppose the question I want to get at is, the importance of having the the history of a club, whether it be the early history, um, I don't know if you're going to go in. Are you looking to have these books in, maybe win out a second one down the line in terms of going into the 80s and the 90s? I'm not too sure, but what's the importance of having these, um, just these memories and, and, and the history of clubs putting down into papers to be passed down maybe from generation to generation of younger Pats fans as it come through? Yeah, it's so important for any football fan to know a history of their, their own club, to have a, a broad sense of it. So where do we go nowadays? We all go to Wikipedia, we just Google, you know, if you're a kid and you want to yeah. find out about the history of your club. Unfortunately, one of the problems is Wikipedia is great, but it's frequently wrong. And so, for example, about Pats, the first line in it is something like, uh, St. Pats moved into Richmond Park in 1930. That's not true. They didn't. They moved into Richmond Park in 1939 nine years after it. So, you know, it's important to have a properly researched and, um, you know, fairly factual history. I'm not saying every single thing I've looked up is, is 100% correct because people, I mainly use newspaper archives for research and newspapers get things wrong. People's names can sometimes be wrong. But in a broad sense, this is an accurate um, academic in, in a sense history, but social history of the football club. Um, and, you know, I do think it's really important for Pats to have that Pats are a, a very significant club in Irish football. If you, no matter if you hate Pats or, or have no massive interest in them, uh, you still have to recognise that Pats are, you know, one of the big clubs in Irish football. Uh, for them not to have had a written history is quite remarkable. And um, when you think of, of the other clubs who've had that for many years, um, I've discovered why. So it's taken me uh, four years to do this, and and it's a lot of long nights and a huge amount of of quite in depth research and different skill sets to try and get it. So people who did try and, and, and record a history of the club before, and by no means the first, but they weren't able to get a book out because that's a that's a, a, a big project in itself. But there are lots of people, and I kind of, you know, I'll be talking about it at our launch on Friday night, and I've kind of talked about it on social media, and even in the book itself. This is just a continuation of work of people like Pat O'Callaghan, um, who's a, yeah. you know, a great Pats fan who was involved with the programme, but also involved in keeping an archive. Um, John Owens, who many people will know online, or Dodge, it was kept statistics on the club, all programs, and um, also people like Tom Hanley, who did brilliant interviews with older players uh, back in the 90s and 2000s, players who played in the 40s and 50s and 60s. We've continued on their work. That's that's the kind of, and someone's going to continue on the work after me. So you talk, Nathan, about, you know, there should be a, a path history for more modern times, and absolutely there should. And I might do it, or someone else might do it. But what's really important now is we have the basis of, of the Saints history going back to 1929, which is when the club. Uh, was founded, but actually even further back again, because Pats, like many clubs, had had different predecessor clubs, also called St. Patrick's uh, or railway clubs in Inchicore that they kind of sprang out of. So that history is in this book right from before the beginning of St. Patrick's Athletic uh, and then their their uh, competitive seasons starting from 1930 on. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned a legendary in Pat O'Callaghan. Um, the great saying he always says that to anybody that will listen is that any volunteer or supporter, we we are minding the club for future gener generations, and we have to leave it in a better state than we found it. So it's great to see. Uh, so another Pat's legend, uh, Dermot, is uh, Brian Kerr, and he know he's he's been a, a bit involved in this process, hasn't he? 
of the book. I think he's uh, the, the forewarder for the for the book. So how did you get Brian involved, and what what can we expect from um, from Brian in, in his couple of words? Yeah, look, I mean, how did I get Brian involved? I just literally asked him once, and he ju- jumped at the chance. Um, yeah. Brian loves Pats. That's just the truth. And he used to commentate in League of Ireland games, and he'd never hide it. He'd never hide his love for St. Pats. <laughs> um, what's really interesting for, uh, is Brian's story of how he came to, to follow Pats, because this book goes up to 1961. As I said, it's the end of a, a decade of League of Ireland success for Pats. They joined in 1951. They won three leagues in that time. They won two FAI Cups. They won a League of Ireland Shield. Irish internationals, hugely successful. And then from 1961 on, up until Kerr takes over as manager and is successful again in the late 80s, Pats are really, you know, there's a massive barren spell. They don't really win anything of significance. His first game, though, as a fan is in 1962. It's right after the time of this book. And he goes down, um, aged, I think, eight to Richmond Park for a game against Cork Celtic, um, the great Cork club. And Cork Celtic won the match 8-2. I think it's the, the highest um, or the biggest uh, defeat Pats have ever faced in Richmond Park. That's Brian Kerr's first game as a Pats fan. And he, and he, and he was, fire. <laughs> you know, but he loved, and, and he remembered, like, I mean, Brian is a brilliant memory and he's a great storyteller. We all know that from from, from, from him on the telly and so on. Um, so he remembers a lot of the players from the later era of, 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 of the book that I've covered here. And, of course, he would be aware of so many other people around the club. So he helped me get in contact with, with some people. But look, he, he, I asked him what he write the forward. He signed. He was here today signing books with me. We've signed, you know, many books because uh, this book, the, the, the way the book came about was we did a crowdfunder um, and people who funded the book online are getting signed books, signed by Brian. And um, he's just been remarkable. He's coming to our launch tomorrow night. He's going to say a few words. But he's a Pat's, Pat's person and he's really proud that, that we now have a, a history book. So I think, you know, he, he's got a lot out of it too, but we're really thankful to him. Um, and look, I, I stand not too far from him on the Canuck side. Like he's as, as much a fan of the club uh, as anyone else, except his, his fandom happens to also be a successful manager for ten years and, and club legend. You know. Yeah. No, is there um, Derm? Is there anything that you found out that you didn't know about the club that fascinated you? Yeah, l- l- nearly all of it. So I, I knew reason pretty much nothing. So one of the things, Roy, is. I didn't really know, and I've put it out there a lot on social media, and I think it's kind of known now by Pats fans in our programme and stuff, maybe not by the club, by uh, League of Ireland fans in general, is that Pats are a railway club, as, as are Dundalk, right? So Dundalk are the other railway club in Ireland. Man United are a railway club, starting yeah. as Newton Heat, um, and there's plenty of them around the world. Penny are all over in Uruguay, and there's lots of railway clubs in football. Pats are as well, and no one ever called me, and I never read it anywhere until now. So they, they founded a group of 16, 17, 18-year-old lads, got together in the Great Southern Railway Works in Inchicore and asked the GSR to put on like a second team or a youth team because they had quite a good football team uh, and they said no so they decided to go off and form their own club and they formed St. Patrick's Athletic so right from the that starting point um, I've been learning things there were clubs before called St. Patrick's and some of those people came on board in the same way you would have with a lot of junior clubs now they would kind of maybe disappear for 10 years and come come again you know, with a similar or the same name. So that's kind of the way Pat started off. Uh, and then something else as well as Roy I learned was, you know, how successful they were in those junior football days and, and intermediate football days that they, they really climbed the ranks. So they had to win the Intermediate League, which is the first league they played in the Phoenix Park. They had to win the AOL Divisions 3, 2 and 1. And they had to win the Lancer Senior Leagues Division 2 and 1 to get anywhere near the League of Ireland. And they were still refused entry when they won all of that four times or three times they were refused and, and they got admitted at the fourth time of asking. So yeah, I did know about Pats winning three leagues, Shea Gibbons and Ronnie Whelan and 
Danny Lowry and all these great players. And I've, I've gone into a lot more detail about it. But I wasn't aware of the story before they joined the league, how great they were. They were knocking out Shamrock Rovers FAI Cups. They were knocking out, they were winning junior cups and intermediate cups. And they were really, really successful junior football club and, and really brought the people of Inchy Core uh, and that wider kind of Drimna and Dublin Southwest community uh, together. Do we um, know? Do we know what colours were the original colours? Were as always red and white? Really interesting question, and and kind of is the answer. Although, the, of course, the photos we have are all black and white, so we only know when it's written down. But I do have stuff going back to the very early thirties, so maybe their second or third uh, season in competitive football, which specifically says red and white. But in the early forties, when Pats were playing in Leinster Senior League Division Two, they for a time wore uh, white shorts. With um, I think uh, green shamrock on the white shorts. So that's interesting. <laughs> that's it's getting, it's getting good. Uh, and blue shorts, and I think blue socks as well. And they went back to red and white then in the late forties. And you can see the style with the, the Arsenal style with the, the red shorts and the white sleeves. Definitely uh, by that kind of late forties period. But even still, and uh, the, uh, even in the late fifties, early sixties, they wore just red with a white V-neck uh, on the jersey. So it wasn't white sleeves. So they've changed over the years, but red and white is certainly there since the very early days. But it's a great question. And again, because pictures are in black and white, we yeah. can't really prove a lot of these things. But, you know, haven't found a few archives and stuff. They wore red and white as their main colours for most of it. And white and red as their white colours for most of those early days. And uh, with, with all the uh, new knowledge that you have to get in Dermot, say it's uh, just just building up and it, you can drop that amateur historian stuff. I'm sure it, it's I'm sure you're walking uh, St. Pat's Wikipedia now at this stage. What um if you were to give like some one person just one probably the most mental random bizarre whatever would you want to put on it fact that you found out about St Pat's history, what what would that be? Yeah, well, there's loads of bizarre random things. One one of the random things that happened in their junior football days as well was they were playing a match. So Pat's uh, again something I learned was about the grounds they played in. I didn't really know. Pat's played for a few years in the forties. In a place called Bluebell Lane, um, for people who know the area, it's kind of where Mr. Price is and, and the Colmar Road now. Um, and they played there for, for a few seasons and they played UCD B, the, the B team of UCD, in the in the AUL uh, league around 1936 or so. And the match, uh, and very often the referees didn't turn up. So this is still a big problem, of course, in football nowadays. And that often happened. So eventually they found someone, you know, a support or whatever, who would deputise, who would stand in as a referee. The problem was this fella didn't have a whistle. There was no no one could get a whistle. So the, the game wasn't going to go ahead. For whatever reason, he needed some whistle or something like it for the game to be allowed to go ahead. And there was a fella going by in a little ice cream cart, and he had one of these kind of hand horns. And so they grabbed the ice cream van horn, and the ref ran around the pitch with this in his hand, little kind of mini trumpet thing. And parked on the horn whenever a free kick was in the game on the head. But, you know, every season there is a really interesting kind of little tidbit of a story like that. That was one from the junior years, but uh, kept going. And the fascinating thing, of course, the League of Ireland era, when these players became really good and were called up to Ireland squads. And Shay Gibbons, who people will know, was probably the best Pats player uh, of this era. He was, he's still our record goal scorer, centre forward, played four times for Ireland while, while playing for Pats. He was nearly, very nearly one of the Busby babes. In fact, Matt Busby came over, watched him play, wanted to sign him, and Pats wouldn't let him sign by the sound of things, which is remarkable. And, you know, there's there's lots of these kind of examples of of either, you know, potential kind of crossroads uh, in people's careers and people's lives. And Shea Gibbons is one of them. He did go on to great fame in Ireland, um, but he could have yet been over there in, in, in the 50s with Pats. 
Yeah. Well, the way it went with the Busby Babes, it, yeah. it, it, the sliding doors uh, scenario, it, it, it could have been a fortunate thing for them. Um, why do you love St. Pat's? Well, like, why do any of us love, love our football club? So you, you, you go down, and I went down as a teenager. My dad actually played for Pats for a season. And so it's in the it's in the family. And I discovered in writing the book that my grandfather had actually been on the committee of the club. Some point, didn't know it all. Um, so there's, there is a family connection for me, and there's a local connection as well. But look, I went down in the, in the mid to late 90s when Pats were actually very successful. They were winning leagues. So I was down the shed end with my mates, and you know we were lighting up flares and all that kind of stuff that lads love to do. So I got a, a very uh, straightforward kind of attraction to going to games. A successful team, great atmospheres under the floodlights, you know, going, starting to go travelling and stuff. That was brilliant for, for me. So that's when I fell in love. Well, I think like if you ask anyone in the in, in the league of you know in Irish football, yes, they might have those family connections or those local connections, but they have to enjoy it. Now, enjoying it might mean winning leagues, and we can't all win the league every year. So you have to find some kind of enjoyment out of it, love out of it. And for me, still, it's going to games, and you know, I'll go to games with my friends, but I also got to games of my own if I need to. Be plenty of people around, so it's a great social experience. Uh, and what I've found out about Pat is, like, and look, everyone thinks they follow the best club in the world because if you don't, you, you know, you have to be a bit deluded about about this. If you don't think you're following the best club in the world, go follow someone else. So you have to have a, like a complete, like, irrational love for it and and a tribal kind of instinct to support a football club. I think if you're going to really, really support it. So I, I got that for Pats very early on. And uh, after it's not going to leave me like, and you don't, you don't go change your league of Ireland club anyway. So I think that's part of an, an answer for you, Roy. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I've asked Nathan on many occasions. He stumbles a little bit and he's not sure now at the moment. I think he's having doubts. You got to go through thick and thin as well. Like, that's the truth. Yeah, you can't be yeah. abandoned when you're not doing well, you know? No, that's, that's why I'm, I'm from Ballyfermot and my first game was the 2003 Cup final beating against Longford. So, set me up in the path to go on fucking losing cup finals <laughs> it was the only um, game i ever cried at Nathan. yeah no nah, no nah, I, I i would have been quite young uh so didn't really cry I did, the only time i ever cried was when we won the cup funny enough after oh, I, that, that was my fourth final at this stage but there was all the fans that have been through much worse than i've been but um don't be minding right don't be minding them at all like, since i moved to sligo me, me love of pats of potty even growing more every friday <laughs> like a lunatic up that informal way trying to uh, go up to Richmond Park. Don't mind him. I was nearly in tears uh, in fr- on, on Friday night up there giving Pat's performance. But anyway, that's another. Yeah. On the yeah. referee, let's we'll we'll say else. less about that. Yeah, damn, he has a he has a half and half and half scarf there with Sligo and, and Pat's on it. Don't mind him. Season season <laughs> just right at the halfway line. <laughs> uh, just before uh, we finish off about the book, uh, what have you made of Pat's season this year? Yeah, look, it was very tumultuous last at the end of last season with what happened with, with Stevie O'Donnell. Um, and clearly, Tim Clancy didn't have the kind of team that he really wanted. It was kind of, he did make some signings and so on. I think it was a bit of a rush job. So we were all fairly ambitious at the start of the season, seeing big names like Colin Doyle coming in and so on. But if you look back on it, in fairness, probably didn't have the team there that he wanted. He's made some good signings and we've been excellent since Europe, since we got knocked out of Europe, went on a great run. It's obviously four place. I, I think they were able for third. I think we really fell fell apart in some important games, particularly up in Sligo the other night. Should have put in a better performance. But if I think fourth is a reasonable outcome, and obviously you're just hoping Derry will do the job in the cup, which I think they should. Um, and if you do get fourth in Europe, you, there's certainly no complaints from, from me anyway as regards that. I think we'd be hopeful of Pats improving next season. I don't think they're going to be challenging Derry and Shamrock Rovers, but hopeful, hopefully more consistent. 
I may be playing a I'd be interested to see what kind of football they play next year because they've gone back to really being a counter-attacking team uh, in the second half of this season. That's been a really interesting change in terms of the way they're doing it. So I will be interested to see that next year. But it's been yeah, an okay season. Look, you know, I talk in this book about plateaus and, you know, times when you go five or six years without winning anything or having a chance of winning anything. Um, it, you know, we had a great uh, couple of results in Europe, really. So it's been an okay season, decent enough. Yeah, Um if there's one thing that you could change instantly at St. Pat's, what would it be? Uh, the ground. ground needs not, not that I would want to move, but the ground needs major improvements. Um, and I think there's a lot of talk about that, and there's a lot of talk quite recently about it, and so I'd be hoping to hear something soon enough. Um, I'd love, I was involved in, in, in campaign group to keep Pat's at Richmond in the, in the mid-2000s. It was looking like we were getting pushed very strongly to move to Tala and something we objected to very strongly we want Pat to stay in inchy court it doesn't have to be Richmond for me um, but ideally it would be um, and then the, the proposed move across the road uh, really didn't go very well uh, so I would be very hopeful that there will be some good news on the on the ground front soon because it's great I love Richmond Park I absolutely adore going down to it it's you know like Nathan there and Adam it's it's our kind of home but it's not good enough uh, for you know bringing families down and you know the the demands of modern football so be very hopeful that they would they would be able to do that. That's the one thing. I wouldn't be changing a huge amount, but uh, a new kind of modernised ground would be great. Do you think it's a bit early fairy at the moment? Or do you think there's any momentum? You know, it's very hard to get these things built. It's very hard to get momentum with these, and it does take a long time. I honestly don't know, Roy. Uh, you know, you hear whispers as a fan, other they'd be announcing something and they're doing this and that, and I don't, I don't know. I'm not close enough to, to, to the scene. But what I do think, you know, this is a, a real discussion we need to have across across the league. So I think that was good news from Bowles today. But they have a long way to go yeah, before they do, do, do it as well. And, you know, it was up in Sligo on Friday, been, been nearly all the way grounds this year. You know, they're uh, talking to Finn Harrop's guys. Like, so there's so much of a demand and uh, to, a requirement, I suppose, to, to do up these grounds. They're just not yeah. up to, to slack at all. And I was involved. I was on, on South Dublin County Council for 10 years. So I was involved in Tallaght Stadium quite heavily uh, for those 10 years and it's absolutely brilliant it's it's the model I think for for so many people to to follow um, but it didn't happen just because of Shamrock Rovers and they're, they're a massive part of the story but it happened because a, a fairly visionary um, local authority was willing to take on a bit of stick yeah. and spend a lot of money in improving it, it, its you know uh, facilities yeah. um, and that's something we have to win politically and, and in the media and everything else as Irish football fans uh, we're going to be serious about a, pro- a proper pro- professional league because it's just not good enough for fans to be getting rained on and you know not have the cover being at Richmond Park or in nearly any other ground in the league no and as we've talked about this many times before Nathan it's a family experience you need to make that family experience an enjoyable one not getting drowned uh, with yeah. your soggy chips there means to be a, a lot more in the grounds that can keep people entertained even even your half time you know performances and stuff like that you see it all over the world it's a, it's an entertainment so uh, it's not just good enough to have the the game there although be it that's the most important part for us all okay uh, we we'll, we're going to leave it at that tell us where they uh, people can get the book uh, once it's launched yeah so we're speaking here on on Thursday night right uh, so Friday uh, November 4th we're doing the launch down in McDonald's and in Chicora we selling books there we're also going to sell them at the Pat Shells game on Sunday, uh, November 6th. And from then on, I suppose Monday is the 7th of November. We'll be online uh, on the club shop uh, at stpatsfc.com and also uh, on the club shop in, in Richmond Park. Uh, it's normal opening hours. 
So the club are brilliant. The club are selling the book uh, for us. It would be a, a, too hard for me to do it on my own, I think. Um, so you'll get it online and on the Pat's website and also in person at the Pat's shop. We're not going to go through booksellers and stuff like that. They take a huge cut. We think, you know, it's better to go uh, give people a chance to get down to the club shop and maybe buy a, a bit of gear, although there's probably not a lot of merchandise going around with uh, Umbro and everything else that's been going on at the moment. But you can get a season ticket maybe if they buy the book as well. Um, and that's where it will be in person and online. That's uh, excellent. And I, I don't think it's going to be just for the Pats fan. I think for the League of Ireland fanatic out there that, that this could be a good read. And Christmas is coming up as well. So uh, why not? Why not go and get that and have a, have a good read? OK, we're going to progress on with the show, Nathan. And uh, Shells in the Women's National League were dramatic winners on the last yeah. day. Uh, tell us about that. And the, the Women's FAI Cup Finals on at the weekend as well. I know, it was all happening, wasn't it, Roy? Coming into the final day of the Women's National League, we had Shelbourne, we had uh, Westford Youth and Athlone all gone for the league title. Um, Shelbourne would have won that, done it? That's a second of, uh, second consecutive Women's National League crown and the third in their history. Um, funny enough, we were actually playing Westford uh, Youths down away from home and comfortably beaten 4-0, Roy. Right? And that was on Saturday. That was our fourth win in the bounce. So we really came into the round in the last stage of the season. We were talking like last week about Cork City in the fourth division title. How in a way they stumbled across the line in the end, even though the the good work was done early on. Uh, but yeah, brilliant for them. Uh, congratulations to all the players. Noel Kane, um, obviously done done an excellent job since going in. Uh, I, like you were saying, they're coming up for the double now. The uh, the women's FA Cup final is on. Let me just check notes. Is on a uh, Sunday, the sixth of November, three o'clock kickoff up in Tallis Stadium. So again, playing at Lone Town. Shelbourne came second in the women's FAI Cup last season. Uh, this is at Lone's fourth final. So interesting one, Roy. Everything up for grabs um, for Shelbourne. Uh, and, and it's bound to be a good crowd at this game, isn't there? Because it's been getting bigger each year. You're hoping. I know with the the, the league, so. yeah. do you not think so? Do you know the no, league no. being that way? But women's football has gotten bigger, and 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 they're they're kind of rallying behind each other. I'd hope to be seeing a, a lot of football clubs bringing their 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 daughters or uh, girls' football teams out to this final. Yeah, look, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, boys. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the, the final day of the league was changed from this coming Friday to the Sunday, especially with Shelbourne playing. Now, they're only playing down the road in Richmond Park, and I think the club even they're running a bus from Tallis Stadium to Richmond, which could help out a little bit. But, yeah, I just think having the final on the same day as, as the uh, the final day of the Premier Division season, it's going to hinder crowd, it's going to hinder media coverage, so... Yeah, that is it's definitely a sticking point for me. I thought it was really disrespectful uh, to not have them have their their own separate day because we seen last year, Roy, the crowd that showed up to to the the, the women's FAI Cup final was excellent, it's a record crowd, and just all the good work that's being done in the women's game domestically and on an international level. It's it seems like that this is the really the time to strike when the when the iron is hot, and just haven't done them much favors now putting it on us the same day as the Premier Division uh, final day. Yeah, okay. Um, we, we leave that there. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Anyhow, that's going to be a, a really good game. Um, I, I'll ask you, Darren, Shamrock Rovers this year, because we're going to discuss the Europa Conference League campaign. What have you made of, um, you've briefly kind of discussed how the stadium is there. What have you made of the professionalism, I suppose, of Shamrock Rovers and how they've slowly built. I mean, they were homeless at one stage and now they seem to have everything going for them. They, they've really kind of focused hard on 
doing everything in the in, in the most professional manner possible? Jeez, you're asking me a tough question there as a Pats fan, you know, like the last <laughs> thing I said about Shamrock Rovers online, I end up getting about 40 different comments from Rovers fans, none of which are very nice towards me. Um, I do think the truth is uh, Rovers have been very professional about the way they've gone about their business, particularly in the past kind of five years or so. Uh, they have a brilliant training ground setup. Uh, they have a brilliant academy. Um, now, as you're saying, Pat, so I'm not going to take that away from and, and other clubs do too, uh, but Rovers have, have really gone about investing. And one of the ways that you know, I don't think it's taught enough about uh, that they've been allowed to invest uh, is the fact that they have a council-provided ground that they pay yeah. rent for, they pay a decent amount, but not a massive amount of rent for. Um, and so they're able to kind of focus on their academy, focus on their first team, and not worry overly about stadium development and so on, as a lot of other clubs do. But the truth is, you know, Stephen Bradley's been been brilliant in terms of the players he's brought in. But I think this season, you know, the European thing is a little bit disappointing for them. But, they, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, they had to focus on the league, and they were absolutely right. And I think Rovers fans recognise that in terms of wrestling players and so on. Um, and they have had a slightly older team this year, um, and a lot of people were questioning them in terms of pace and stuff like that. They just turned it on when they needed to. And I think Gaffney has been... Gaffney and Manus have probably been their two best players. I know Andy yeah. Lyons had a great season as well. Like, they're both getting on in, in, in their own way. Um, I, I assume Gaffney's going to win Player of the Year. Um, he's been a revelation in terms of his, his improvement this year. And they've had a lot of players playing towards the peak of, of their performance. That's what you want as, as a manager, as, as a fan. You want players playing, you know, in, in themselves and, and, and to, their, to their top level. And I think that's what Roberts has been able to do. So, yeah, they've been very professional with the way they've gone about things. I think themselves, they haven't really been challenged in the past couple of seasons. We were second last year, 32nd this year. Still a bit off them, I would say. Um, yeah. But I do think Derry will be will be closer to them next year. And look, not, nothing lasts forever. You know, Roberts did win a four in a row in the 80s. They're, they're going for four in a row next year. There'll be a lot of pressure on them for that. But I do think someone's going to come and, uh, and challenge them. And, and I think Roberts have a rebuild that they have to take on now in the, in the close season. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nathan, that Rovers Europa Conference League campaign, we as a league, I think we were excited. Obviously, there's some people who don't give a crap, but as a league, I think we're excited because we want to see our teams get into those latter stages and generate money. As you, as you're seeing, I mean, the, the draws they got in in one draw, they're getting more than what they are in the league, yeah. which is mental, you know. So it's great for. Shamrock Rovers on this occasion but whoever it was Dundalk or, and whoever it is in the future that the that money is there and, and the, the league standard is getting higher uh, just I suppose it's a little bit disappointing the, the World Cup's kind of screwed them up with the, the compact fixture list Yeah a little bit Roy and I think even when the, the initial draw was made for, for uh, the Europa Conference League we thought that they were never going to like we're never going to sit here and say they're going to win the group or even qualify into into the knockout phases. But there was definitely opportunities there to pick up points. And as you said, like the money for even a draw was more that you got for winning the league. What's win the league? Just over just over hundred thousand, isn't it? Hundred thousand, hundred and ten thousand in around that ballpark. So yeah, and you could see why. And then I was seeing people giving out that Bradley was resting players in Europe to go win a league when the league's prize money is so low. But that's not really the case. They're going to win the league and then get into the Champions League next year. And it's just all about Europe. And I think that's how League of Ireland clubs even just sustain themselves. Like, Dermot will know, like last year, going to the cup final, the day it was amazing. Winning the cup is brilliant, especially when you're beating a Dublin rival. But it's all about getting into Europe on a consistent basis. It doesn't have to be in the group stages, but getting yourself a good uh, qualification run even because th- that's where the money is these days where the silverware is more of a, of a nicety than anything else 
But yeah, when you're looking at Shamrock Rovers, they're going to touch on it that it's an aging squad and it is getting there, and they're going to have to bring in reinforcements. But you look, you got three point three million for getting to the group stages, Roy. For them two draws alone, it's uh, three hundred thirty-two thousand. That goes without, you know, the, the money, and it should have been much more money that they got from uh, Andy Lyons going to uh, the Blackpool. They got a small fee for uh, Danny Mandrew uh, going to Lincoln. Gavin Bazzini, new sell-on clause came in. So, when you add all that up, it's it, it is nice for uh, finances going forward because Derry City will be down the throat for the next foreseeable future with, with the financial backing that they have. So, yeah, there is that's where the money is uh, in, in here, and yeah, long may continue having. Having any sort of league of Ireland club, getting being a consistent figure in the Europa Conference League, because we talked about it all the time. It's just about improving that coefficient, doesn't it? So, well, it's difficult to sit here with with a, a Pat's T-shirt on, praising Shamrock Rovers and hoping to see them do well in Europe. It can only benefit the league long term. And again, Dermot, you look at how St. Pat's performed in their qualifying campaign and they played really good football and... Uh, uh, the quality in the games, uh, it was exciting to watch them games. When you look at Pats, how did they get to that stage now? How did they get to the Dundalk level where they were in the group stages to the Shamrock Rovers stages? Well, I think one of the problems for Pats is like it, 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 a huge amount does come down to finances, but it, it also comes about having the right manager at the right time um, with kind of the right system and bringing in a core of players who can really progress things and, and push things on and you know, Pats haven't pushed on this season um, compared to last season, but I think most people are aware of the circumstances uh, around that. So, you know, there wasn't unbelievable pressure on Tim Clancy uh, to, you know, better last season or anything like that. Um, so I think I, I think that's what it comes down to, a core of really talented players who are going to push it on, some financial backing to, to bring in some others. Uh, and you need a little bit of luck too. When, you know, Pats didn't get the luck, for example, uh, in, the, in the home tie against CSK Sophia uh, in terms of, refereeing decisions and missed chances and stuff like that. Had we got that, we would have got another round on, a lot more money in. Um, I do think Pats are going about their business the right way in terms of their academy and in terms of, you know, uh, Sam players on. So, for example, you've James Banquet there in, in Udinese. Uh, you've Sam Curtis coming through with a lot of talk about him and a lot of big clubs being taught uh, about regard to Sam. And there's other young players there too who are going to go abroad. And that's a model that, you know, Pats, Rovers and, and some other clubs have basically gone down Quite quietly, but that's the new model for for many clubs now in the league, uh, in terms of maybe earning sell out through sell on clauses uh, as well as the initial transfer fee. So yeah, they need more money. If they could absolutely do with more money, and they need to maybe have more certainty around ground development so they can kind of focus a little bit more on things. But I'd be reasonably happy with the way things are at Pats. They're probably in a decent opposition. I think Tim Clancy has a job in his hands to to do a bit of a rebuild himself and uh, and put a core of players in who are going to push on next year and. You know, hopefully improve on this season. That that's all you ever really want to want to ask for. To, you know, fair. Yeah, I think so. And I think when you look at the academies, they are key to the financial uh, structures of all these clubs. If they can get them right and get players away for decent money, and the, and the more decent players that go away, the more the price will go up for the, these players. And eventually, you'll get to a stage where you're able to keep a few players. But that's a long way down the line, I think. Okay, well, there's a couple of managers who won't have anything to do with their their club structure because they're gone. Nathan, who are they? They are, yeah. The, the fourth divisions, not even. Did not even in the rear view mirror yet. When hardly even finished it. We're after having uh, two men just getting off the managerial mirror go round. We we'll start off, um, and both of them actually really surprising lads. I don't know. I was very surprised when I seen these two names depart the clubs. 
Uh, first of all, it was announced uh, on Longford Town's uh, social medias earlier in the week that Gary Cronin has left the club. Um, he was appointed in December 2021, replacing Darrell Doyle. Uh, it was said that he left up to uh, personal circumstances. And according to Neil O'Reilly on Sun Sports, those personal circumstances are Gary will be going to Bohemians to become a part of Declan Devoyant's coaching staff. Um, okay. He's done a great job at, at this year, you know. Um, I thought we were miles off the pace last year when, when they were up in the Premier Division, but finished fourth this year, uh, got to the playoffs, were beaten by Galway 5-2 over two legs in the playoffs. Um, considering they the finished fourth behind three full-time clubs, that's a structure that they don't have there at the moment. Yeah, I, I thought Gary did a good job. Um, it's going to be difficult, I think, to replace him. I've seen a name being banded around already. Is uh, it, wouldn't be Rice. it wouldn't be Ian Ryan, would it? We get back onto Stephen Rice in a second, but now no, you brought him up. It could be, yeah. It was announced about an hour before we came on the podcast, which is an absolute saving grace. How many times have we done this show, right? And an hour after we record the bloody thing, something gets announced. So thanks to Wexford, they were definitely thinking of the boys when he announced this one. Uh, yeah, Ian Ryan has uh, resigned from his role uh, as Wexford manager with immediate effect. Really, really shocked about this one, considering that was earlier on in the year he was approached for the Waterford role and he decided to turn it down to, to stay with the project that's going on at, at Wexford. So, yeah, that was definitely one. Both of them are, but this is the really the shocking one that I've seen. So, mm. yeah, perhaps he is on his way um, to the Midlands, way on to Bishopsgate. But, I think if you're looking at Longford, Stephen Rice, as I said, seems to be a really popular name that's coming up. Would he have to leave his role with the national team? I think that would be a thing. Would you see that happening? I don't know. What what, you think is is the uh, on the the scouting staff, isn't he, for the Republic of Ireland men senior team? So yeah, I know. He's more of a he's a cult hero as a player for Longford. It was very surprising when he went there. He won the uh, fourth division with them in 2014, but. He's a popular name, a popular figure, but this Ian Ryan now has really thrown spanners into the works. And yeah, I, I, I would be a big fan of Ian. I even thought that it made sense that he was in the runner for that Bohemian's job. But yeah, really surprised that he left Wexford. Just considering that for the first time in a long time, there seems to be a, a solid enough structure behind him. He seems to have not massive finances but approved finances and approved wiggle room to, to to bring in the players he wants to and it's something that Wexford haven't had in the longest time so yeah strange one to see and uh, the points and the points tally that they probably haven't and had the in a, a, yeah, a long all, time uh, so uh, out, out of the bottom two for the for the first time in what yeah. feels like uh, quite a long time I think there'll probably be a few changes now over over this winter period in the next month or so. So it'll be interesting to see who's going where. You'd imagine and, uh, Ray Wanderers will be looking in the market for a new manager <laughs> too, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, and supporters, seemingly. That's, that's, that's what I've heard. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that one there, definitely. Uh, we'll go on to the fine question, Nathan, and I'll let Derma answer this one first. Yeah, that's Grant. Uh, anybody, you know, there's a lot of crack by now. Fan questions, get them in. The big kickoff, social media, Nathan Doyle, Roy Shanahan, you know the crack. Um, once again, Roy, Daddy Kill has come to the rescue. Daddy Kill, Eamon Tangra. Uh, we appreciate it as always. So, again, feels weird calling me dad by his first name. Uh, Eamon wants to know, uh, should players celebrating in front of opposition fans be punished or should the book stop with the fans that can't control themselves? You asked me that, Nathan. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's an open discussion there, mate. If you'd like to... Yeah, I mean, to lead me. no, no, no way, in my opinion, right? So, like, this is part of football. The worst thing I think that happens is when you get a bit of a reaction from a, a player 
you know, your fans, you're criticizing opposition player, you get a bit of reaction from, and then you see the fans going mad, saying, "How dare he stick his finger up at us, or how dare he, whatever." At the end of the day, you've wound them up and you've had a bit of banter yeah. with them, and I have absolutely no problem with an away uh, a player celebrating in front of an away section, be it our section or or some other team. Now, of course, there can be safety concerns, particularly in a bigger ground or something like that. But the fans need a bit of cop on. Unfortunately, I was in Sligo on uh, on Friday and saw some fans who didn't have much cop on from both sides. So, you know, I'd like to see fans getting getting in more trouble for that. And I don't want to see players getting in more trouble for that. I think it's part and parcel of the of the to and fro in, in, in football. Yeah, you can't you can't call someone a dickhead for forty five minutes and then they score a goal and not expect them to, to, to do something. Yeah, I I'd I'd be in a similar boat. I think that you're getting to the territory of over policing and, and overdoing it in terms of finding players, finding managers, things like that. Yeah, I, for me, the, the like it's, it's part of the game, really, isn't it? it, it it's part of parcel of the whole experience. And like I said, you you can't be giving someone dogs abuse for 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 most of the game and expect them to just when they score a goal right beside you not to do anything. Like we were the same. You probably remember Dermot, famous Sean O'Connor incidents up, up in Tallaght, giving the finger to the Pats fans. And it was the same thing. It was, oh, disgraceful scene, shocking scene, should be fined, should be kicked out of the league. It's it's just part of it, really. I, I think I'd be going overboard. The best one I ever saw in terms of a, an opposition player as a Pats fan was up in Dundalk when uh, Dave Rogers was playing for Dundalk, who had played for Pats and pretty much everyone else. And he dropped his shorts in front of the Pats fans. Now he's got a red card <laughs> and a big blind out of it. I'm sure that's great crack, like. I know, okay, yeah, he's going to have to be punished for maybe that. But celebrating in front of, of, of away fans or, or of opposition fans, that's grand. That's part and parcel of it. Killian Brennan was the player I always remember. He used to love to do it. Whether he was with Pats or playing against us, he, he loved that bit of, bit of crack. And uh, it's part of the game for me. Yeah, it's hugely part of the game because it, it's... It's, as you said, the banter is is important to have, but you know well that f- fans get away with murder, slagging, and you know that anything they can get, anything they can grab onto, and they they won't leave it for just one game. It'll be it could be over a couple oh, of yeah. seasons, so this could be building for a long time. So if some, if a player gets his his goal or gets their win, I think it's our as long as it's as long as it's not overdone you know it can be a little acknowledgement in whatever sort of way you want but uh, yeah you, it's it's I don't know some people can probably take it and some people can't and if you can take it in good gestures and you know then that's not a problem I don't think so um, okay we're going to leave it there uh, Dermot thanks very much for joining us on the show it's been a real pleasure having you on um, we'll see you in four years time for the next book uh, Nathan uh, you can forward the next book uh, although it probably won't reach uh, when you see in football so you'll have to wait probably yeah. for the third book um, and listen anyone out there listening and who is watching the YouTube clips and etc thanks very much uh, we're delighted with all the feedback that we're getting back from this. We'll talk to you next week.